0: So uh, tonight we're going to be in uh, the book of Luke, chapter 3. Um, it's going to take us quite some time to kind of cruise through this book, but we're going to do a whole chapter tonight. And Luckily, we got one of the shorter ones. So um, tonight we're going to be talking about John being a voice in the wilderness um, as a preparation for Jesus. And so last week um, we spent quite a bit of time talking about Jesus as a baby, Jesus as a boy, and Jesus as a tweenager, or a tween. Um, that's a new term. Uh, I think probably about 10 years old. It's a really strange term, but I like it. Um, and we talked about the <clears throat> simplicity in which our Savior entered this earth um, and lived as part of a, a poor, seemingly insignificant Jewish family. Uh, Mary and Joseph were not uh, royalty. They were not kings. They didn't have uh, barns full of animals. Um, They didn't have wealth, um, but that God chose to use um, seemingly insignificant people to accomplish um, the greatest human being that's ever lived, which is Jesus. Um, Yet on the other side, we looked at the deep sense of awe and wonder um, that his young life produced in the hearts and the minds of those who met him. As simple as he came, um, every time someone encountered Jesus from shepherds to uh, teachers of the law in the temple, they were amazed at at what Jesus brought to the table, which is pretty pretty cool. So just this awe and wonder um, of Jesus, uh, yet his simplicity. And I think, to me, this really speaks of a simplicity of the gospel message, Um, the reality that the gospel is just that Jesus came to bring his love and redemption for us, and that he paid the price and did it all, And all we have to do is say yes to Jesus. Uh, There's just such a simplicity in that. Yet, we have the opportunity um, to spend our whole lives pursuing an understanding of God. Um, That God, yet His gospel is simple. He is so vast in Himself. That there is no end or beginning to God. That there is no um, human mind that can comprehend the vastness of God. Um, and that if we could understand the vastness of God, he would cease to be God, in my opinion. He would just become a human that we could understand or psychoanalyze. Um, and yet, uh, we get to pursue him for our entire earthly life, and then we get to be with him in our eternal life, um, which is pretty amazing. So, that's kind of what we talked about last week in Luke uh, chapter 2. And tonight, we're going to be talking about John um, At these kind of crazy, challenging words and life of John the Baptist, who was just, he was a kook, man. This guy was odd, and he was strange, and he ate honey, and wore weird clothes, and like ate bugs and stuff, and lived in the wilderness. And that's how John lived, and he had some very harsh, hard, yet super loving things to say to God's people as he prepared the way for Jesus to come. So I'm just going to pray for us and then we're going to jump right into discussion. Jesus, just make your word clear in our hearts and our minds. Allow us to just take in what you're saying to us. Um, I pray that you would speak deeply to who we are and that we would leave um, this living room, this home, um, looking more like your son. Um, Allow us to just be transformed not by what I have to say, but by what your word has to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So discussion... uh, for those of you who've been around and those of you who haven't, I'm not asking rhetorical questions. Uh, I don't have an answer to these. I'm not looking for one specific. It's not like that thing in class where you, 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 your teacher's saying, like, oh, wait, but that was a good answer, but also, like, what's the real answer? Like, that's never the case. Um, just want to have some time to chat and dialogue about um, life, and uh, there's no wrong answer or dumb answer or dumb question. So um, I might create a dumb question, but you guys won't. So... Um, Tonight, first question is, do you have people in your life who uh, that tell you the real honest truth? What is it like to have people like this who equally encourage you and challenge you? Do you have people who you can be, for, for what um, John's going to be sharing with us? So we're going to jump right in. Um, we're going to read out of the NLT. It'll be on the screen as well, um, starting in verse 1. It says, it was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod and Antipas was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip was a ruler of Atrea and Trun, whatever that is. Uh, yes, and all of those places. <laughs> Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. At this time, a message from God came to John, the son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness. Then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching that the people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins, and turned to God to be forgiven. And so in the opening of chapter 3, we see um, Luke the historian. Um, We see a version of Luke where he he really breaks down, um, describes the political and cultural environment of Israel during that time. Um, The reality is is that Israel during this time was a distant territory of the Roman state. They had no um, national sovereignty at all. Um, They were ruled over um, by a Roman empire that literally stretched um, from the farthest parts of Western Europe in France, parts of England, all the way down to North Africa, through Egypt, all the way over past um, Israel on the east side, and then all the way up. I mean, this was a massive empire. So they were a distant land of the Roman emperor. Um, And he talks about Tiberius being the emperor of Rome. um, And Tiberius was known for ruling with cruelty and severity. He was not known for being a great guy, uh, which is a key uh, element in every one of these rulers. Um, He speaks of Pontius Pilate, who would have been below Tiberius as the regional governor of Israel. Um, And and Pontius Pilate, um, as we'll see later in the story, um, he was known for brutal massacres of the Jewish people um, as a display of his power and authority. He wanted to crush them to show them who was in charge and that they would be subjects of the Roman Empire. Um, That was what he was known for. Below him was Herod Antipas and Philip, who were brothers, um, both native Jews who um, would have been hated by their people because uh, they would have said yes to the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire gave them power. But they would have been hated by the Jews because they would have been tools of the empire. And they both were known for a deep sense of corruption and cruelty towards their own people. They were in it for what they could get out of it. Um, Below them, Annas and Caiaphas um, were high priests in the temple uh, who spent very little of their time leading the people in any sort of religious or spiritual manner or even in morality, and they mostly spent their time fighting for power and authority. Um, They spent their time uh, on their ability to to gain political power in the system. Um, And so clearly there was a culture of deep corruption and poor government leadership throughout the land. Yet, in the midst of this environment and uncertainty, um, God sent both John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah. Um, I think that this time in Israel's history is, is an image of our time in the world history. There is no certainty, and we see corruption and brokenness and power grabbing all around the world, um, where people are, are objects and, and their leaders crush them. Yet, I think it's beautiful that Jesus comes in the midst of an environment like this, and the reality that this same Jesus is still alive in our environment as well. Um, and so, um, as part of, of this, uh, I think that we, we have the reality that we all desperately need Jesus to move in, in our dark and broken world. We need a Savior, we need a Messiah in the midst of our, in the midst of our world the same way they did. And and Luke, um, in the midst of this season, he introduces John the Baptist, um, who is described as a voice in the wilderness. Um, He was known for eating bugs and honey and wearing strange clothes. Um, John was just a strange dude. I don't think there's anybody in the Bible quite like John the Baptist. Um, He spent his ministry um, going from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, which cuts through the east side of Israel. And he just used this as a place like a a permanent baptismal. Um, he just jumps from one side. I just imagine him having a little, a little boat. He'd just go to one town and then cruise across to the other one and he'd preach and then he'd baptize people and then kind of cruise across and he just kept going back and forth across the river. Um, he had no problem speaking his mind or sharing his extremely challenging view of what it looks like to follow the Lord. Um, and John's message to Israel in the midst of this was to be baptized in water to repent of their broken religion, and to walk in forgiveness of their God. Um, And and this might seem strange to us as Christians, but this would have been completely revolutionary to Jewish people. Um, The picture of baptism to Jews was something that Gentiles did to become part of the Jewish faith. Jews would have never ever in the history of their religion have ever been baptized in water. Um, this was something that was strictly for Gentiles who wanted to follow the Lord. Um, This would have literally been a, um, like John was comparing them to ungodly and unchosen Gentiles, and Jews did not like that. Um, (laughs) One scholar would say of baptism of the people of God, he said, this was a mark of humble repentance and radical rededication to the Lord. Like they would have had to say, I'm as lowly as a Gentile. That would have been huge for them. Um, this essentially would have been telling them that their broken religion couldn't suffice to make them in right standing in relationship with God. Those were seriously challenging words to the Jewish people. Um, and I think we can't even possibly fathom how deeply John would have been hitting them in the face with the fact that Jewish people need to become like Gentiles to really know God. It's just, it's so revolutionary. Um, and he takes this challenging attitude as we continue in, in verse 4. Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness. John literally did shout. Preparing the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. The valleys will be filled and the mountains and hills will be made level. The curves will be straightened and the rough places made smooth. Then all the people will see and the salvation, the salvation sent from God. When the crowds came to John the Baptist, he said, You brood of snakes. I'm sure that's what we all want to hear when we go to church. Um, <laughs> Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, We are safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now the acts of God's judgment is poised and ready. To sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked, what should we do? John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked teacher, what should we do? He replied, collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do? Asked some soldiers. John replied, do not extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. So Luke, the historian and studier of scripture, describes this role of John as a servant who was sent to prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Um, I imagine John as sort of a battering ram. I mean, he just was like plowing through people. Um, He clearly lived in abnormal and intense Pursuit of God and his desire to see people turn their lives back to the Lord. Luke references the prophet Isaiah from over 400 years ago, um, that this prophecy would have been given, as he describes the coming of Jesus as a larger-than-life experience. Um, He says that he will flatten the valleys and tear down the mountains, um, and that he will bring salvation to all people, every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. Um, And like I said last week, I'm sure glad that Jesus the Savior came to both Jews and Gentiles, of which we are all Gentiles. I don't know any of us that are Jews. I'm sure glad that Jesus came for all of us. Um, Mm -hmm. As the crowds came to hear and see this voice in the wilderness, John shared with passion and vigor as he challenged people to leave behind their empty religion in pursuit of a true relationship with God. Um, And this is all they had known for thousands of years is this genealogy, and I'm related to God this way. And and it's really cool. We're going to look, um, we're not going to read the whole genealogy, because it would be very difficult to read. But um, if you look at different genealogies in Scripture, you literally see that there are these Gentiles that are woven into the story as well. So Rahab, who was the prostitute who helped the nation of Israel escape, uh, or helped these spies escape Jericho, right? She's actually written into the genealogy of Jesus, which is revolutionary in two ways, because she was a Gentile and she was a woman. And she was written in, which is incredible. Um, but, but John is telling them that their genealogies of like, I'm related to Abraham, so I'm good, right? Like, I'm, I got this. He's like, that means nothing. Literally, he says to them um, that their empty genealogies and religion mean nothing. They have no value at all. And that God's people are not just called to believe all the right things, but to live out their faith in tangible, practical ways. like This is not just something we believe in our heart. It's something that we live as an expression of who we are, Um, which makes me think of uh, James chapter 1 verse 27. He says, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Um, So pure and genuine religion in the sight of God is caring for others and living as an expression of our lives, not only our care for our world, but our desire to live a life that looks holy and godly. Um, that not letting the world corrupt us. And our God, since the beginning of creation, calls us to live out what we believe in our minds and our hearts. This action shows that we truly know God. Uh, I think that all of us have been around church to some extent, and we know those people who um, you're like, you, you see them on the street, and we're probably like that in a lot of ways, too. And people would say, Oh, like you're a Christian? Man, that's, a, that's, that's interesting. I, I would have never thought you were one, you know, I would have never imagined that you believe in Jesus, right? And I'm sure that we've had those moments for us too, so we can't obviously cast any stones. There's definitely moments um, when I play basketball that I am not the most Christian person. Um, but that God calls us to live a life of action, um, a live a life that, that produces uh, good fruit. Um, uh, God says through John that uh, we're supposed to give generously, stop stealing, and be honest. Um, this is what he says to these people when they say, how do I, how do I know this God? How do I, how do I follow God? Um, and he doesn't stop there. Sometimes I'm like, John, could you just stop there? Because that would be a lot easier to teach what you're saying if you just didn't say those other things. Um, he goes on to say that judgment will come for all of us and that God will truly decide who of us are really believers. That we're all going to stand before God at some point and our true colors will present themselves. Um, there's no hiding anymore uh, who we are. Um, and John the Baptist calls people to live lives that produce good fruit um, of a life devoted to following their God. And when I think of good fruit, I think of Galatians 5, um, where Paul describes, uh, But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fruitfulness, or faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There is no law against these things. Um, right? Those are the fruits that we want God to produce in us. Um, is fruits of the Spirit. And this is what a life looks like according to the Lord through John. Um, and I hope and pray that, that God would enable me and you to live a life that is fruitful in this manner. That we would truly um, not just come to church and, and proclaim to be Christians or proclaim to be followers of Jesus, um, but live a life that that looks that way, right? I want my life daily to look more like what John is describing in this passage um, So let's continue to look as John points to Jesus. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon, and they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. And John answered this question by saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I am not even worthy to be his slave or untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork, and he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. John used such many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. John also publicly criticized Herod, the ruler of Galilee, for marrying Herodias, his brother's wife, and for many other wrongs he had done. So Herod put John in prison, adding this sin to his many others. So John the Baptist, in his signature style, speaks uh, to challenge our thinking and beliefs about what Jesus will bring. He even challenges the governor, or the, the Jewish leader, Herod, um, and gets thrown in prison. I mean, John has no, uh, pulls no punches, right? Um, he can't be bought, he can't be controlled, he just shares what he thinks um, and he tells the crowd that the Messiah indeed is coming and that his life will be majestic and beautiful and awe-inspiring, right? But John also describes this Jesus that we have begin to talk about that doesn't look anything like a Jesus that's a political leader. He doesn't look anything like a Roman crusher. He doesn't look anything like a president or an emperor. He looks a lot different than that. Um, he doesn't conform to the idealistic Jewish view of a political leader Messiah um, or a Roman-crushing Savior. Instead, he speaks about a man who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This would have been totally different than the Jewish people were prepared for. Um, And John shows a Messiah that he says is greater than I am. So much greater, he says. Which I think is like an understatement when we think about Jesus. Like When I think about Jesus... He's not even just like so much greater than me. Like it's like not even fair. Like how much greater God is than we are. He says that He's literally not worthy even to be His slave or to untie His sandals to take off His shoes. Um, John just has this beautiful, powerful image of the Savior that is is coming. Um, and John also um, describes a God who will do away with godless religion and bring desperately needed relational Messiah. Um, Again, we we can't fathom what it was like to live thousands of years without really truly knowing God. The reality for um, the Jewish people is that they had a priest who would go into the temple and hear from God once a year. right? Or they would have a prophet who the Holy Spirit would rest upon. And that one guy or gal was the only prophet most of the time that ever had the Holy Spirit rest on them. The only person in the whole world That God was speaking to sometimes was just one person, which is incredible. They never had met this relational God before. Jesus was going to like totally rock their world, and they didn't even know it yet. They had this simple-minded view of Jesus being a political leader, and he was going to be so much greater than that, right? Because political leaders, they live and they die, and we forget about them, and they get written in books. But Jesus lives forever, and his legacy never ends. Um, the reality is, is um, again that he's not going to look anything like what they were looking like what they were expecting um, he is preparing them for the real good news and the good news is not a political message but a life transforming truth that points us towards relationship Christianity is not a political, political viewpoint um, let's finish uh, Luke 3 together um, one day when the crowds were being baptized Jesus himself was baptized As he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. I can't even imagine what that would be like. The voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. Jesus was about 30 years old when when he began his public ministry. Jesus was known as the son of Joseph. And then there are a long genealogy that you're welcome to read on your own accord. Um, It would take me about 45 minutes and I wouldn't say any of the names correctly. Um but Luke finishes this uh this chapter with a beautiful image of a human god again um he paints this picture of a perfect spotless sinless messiah coming as a human being to be baptized in water um which I think is a connection to what we talked about last week about how Jesus was circumcised there was no need for Jesus to be circumcised or to be baptized in water He was perfect. He needed no redemption. He needed no covering. He needed no correction. He needed no human ability to be right with God. He didn't need this. Um, Yet he submitted himself to this human thing as a view, uh, as as a picture for us to see that that he was like us, that he was 100% human yet 100% God um, and that he came to be with us he didn't need cleansing. Um, he literally is part of the Trinity. He doesn't, he doesn't need this. Um, but in his humility and his di- desire to identify with his people, he submits himself to this ceremonial purification. And in this moment, it says that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and encouraged by his Father. You are my dearly loved Son, and you bring me great joy. And I love, um, Cassie pointed this out to me today. She said... Um, That when He says that you are my dearly loved Son and you bring me great joy, Jesus hadn't done anything. He hadn't accomplished anything. He hadn't healed anybody. He hadn't saved anybody. He hadn't done any miracles. He hadn't uh, cast out any demons. And I think that's so beautiful for us. That like God has joy and loves us even before we do anything good for Him. Most of the time, I don't do good things for God. I mess it up for God. And the reality is that I'm still his dearly loved son, and he still cares for me. And I think that's so amazing about this. um, He said that about his son. Um, And after that point, Jesus begins this three years of ministry that will literally change the world. Um, But up until this point, he didn't do any miracles. He didn't do any sin crushing. He didn't do any demon casting outing. Uh, He bided his time and waited for everything to be the right time. Which I think is a a great thing for us too. Sometimes I think we hear from God or we have a great idea and we say, Man, it's time to go, right? i got to go do this thing for God. And Jesus waited 30 years. Like, he was no less the Messiah when he was born than he was when he was 30. But he waited for the right time. And I think that's so amazing for us that we need to wait for the, not only the right thing, but the right thing in the right time. Because I think uh, that vision without timing is lifeless work. Um, it's lifeless striving. It's us trying to create something that isn't ready yet. Um, and so um, Jesus shows us this patience. And to end this passage, Luke shares in the entire genealogy of Jesus. Um, as tedious as it might be, all the way back to Adam. Um, and I think there's two reasons that he did this. Um, one, I think he wants to show that Jesus fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. Um, that there are like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about Jesus, and he literally completed all of them. And I think the key was that Jesus came back to the line of David. Um, it said in the Old Testament that Jesus was going to complete that. And so he was true to his word, and he he completed that in that way. And secondly, I think he wanted to again show his humanity to us. Um, that Jesus, even though he was God, came as a man and subjected himself to the broken human body as a sign of his deep love and salvation for his people. I love that God in all of his glory and his honor became one of us so that he could know um, as scripture says, that there is no pain, there is no agony, there is no brokenness, there is no sin. I mean, he didn't sin, but there's no area of our life or um, thing that we're going to experience that Jesus didn't experience. He never sinned, but he experienced every human emotion and feeling and being rejected and being beaten and being hung on a cross by the same people he came to save. And so when we're in our dark places of life, we can know that Jesus was there too. Um, Jesus knows what it's like I can follow that kind of God